Planet Earth is an ocean, and if you want to stay afloat, you gotta build a boat. Now, it's not easy to build a boat. Boats are huge. It takes a lot of effort from a lot of people. But there's a lot of different ways to get it done. And there are a lot of different types of boats. If you want to build a boat by yourself that can survive the flood, it's going to take a lot of work. Now, you can fashion yourself a little raft and you can stay above the water. But you're always going to be maintenancing your raft. There's always going to be pieces breaking off that have to be put back. You're always going to be looking for new pieces of wood as yours rots out. There's no structure. You're, you got sharks biting at your heels. You're in a dangerous spot. The longer you stay with this boat plan, and the longer you don't have anybody who can help you to, to build a bigger, better boat, the, the harder it's going to get to ever change course. What you need to do is start as soon as possible on building the best boat you can. Most people will simply join someone else's boat project. If you see that somebody is building a good boat, then you might as well just get on board their boat. If you help them build it, they'll let you ride it. You see a boat, you think that's a good boat, I'm going to get on that boat. But let's say you get on that boat, or you start working on the boat, and you start to realize that even though you're working on this boat, you might not ever get led onto this boat, or you might be stuck in the lower deck of this boat, or it might be that you think this boat is not going to actually be sea ready. You think this thing uh, is, you think this thing's going to sink one day. You're suspecting that this boat does not have the structural integrity that was promised in the blueprints. Maybe it's not being built to code. Maybe somebody is trying to get away with getting onto the boat without working on the boat. Maybe they've taken up a position of managing the people who work on the boat, but they're not really doing anything because they're mismanaging the people who are building the boat, causing it to take longer or be built wrongly. If you start to suspect that this might be the case, then you've got to make a decision. Do I want to continue working on this boat and just not question what's going on even though I see all these things happening around me? This is the coward's way. This is, I'm not convinced that there is another boat that is that I can cling to, that I need this boat. Even if this boat ends up not being the best boat, well, what other option do I have? Well, that's a really stupid way to go because you already know that boat's sinking, so you're, you're literally just committing suicide at this point. Now, you could try to change what's going on with the boat. You could be like, hey, I'm going to clean this thing up. I'm going to start pointing out what the flaws in this. We're going to try to turn this project around. And so you start working at it. And uh, maybe you could have success with that depending on the boat and the structure of its, you know, boat building community. But it's also possible that you will not accomplish anything, that you will toil 
for years trying to curb the behaviors of the other people building this boat, but realizing that the problems are more systematic, more core to the plan of the boat than you realized, and that there is no salvaging this boat. Hopefully, you recognize at an early enough moment that this is happening to get away and go start work on something else. So you could either go find another boat, you could transfer from boat to boat, or you could just start your own boat project. And maybe you're doing it by yourself, maybe you can have help from other people, maybe you have connections, maybe other people left the previous boat with you and are trying to build the new boat together. If you try to build it by yourself, and you have a vision for what will be an actual, sustainable, long-term boat for yourself, or for others to ride on, others who you want to bring to the boat. Maybe you have an idea of people who you've seen working on other boats who you think are talented and could help to build your boat even better. So you group these people together, or you work by yourself until you can, and you just dedicate your all to building this boat. Now luckily, you can stay afloat even with the the early stages of the boat's design if it's sturdy from the bottom if it's got a good foundation you can use tried and true formulas there have been so many boats that have been successful you can easily study what they did you can implement other people's boats into your boat you don't even have to make a unique boat at all hell one of the easiest ways to build a boat by yourself is just to get a stock template boat if there's a boat that tons of people have been able to build entirely by themselves super easily and you think, well, I know that boat will sail, then go for it. It's a great way to stay alive. But there's more to riding a boat than just staying afloat. You could ride faster. You could feel the wind in your hair as you sail the seas. You could have a cool-looking boat. You could have a boat that fits more people than yourself, even if you're the only one who built it. Maybe you just want to use your boat to help as many people as you can. Maybe you're just going to build the biggest fucking cruise ship imaginable. Or maybe you're going to build a boat that's just a fucking surfboard. And you're just going to surf the waves even though you could do anything you want. You could have any kind of boat. You're most comfortable right there on the edge of the water from birth to death. On a motherfucking awesome surfboard. Hell, it could be a raggedy piece of shit surfboard. Whatever you're passionate about. Hopefully, I don't have to explain this metaphor, and you understand that I'm talking about building a career, building a life, building purpose for yourself, finding something that's going to carry you into the future. What got me on this train of thought is this great podcast that was just put out by Chase Face talking about his falling out of love with voice acting. And most of what he talks about is the problems in the voice acting industry that are not in any way surprising to me because they're the same stories I would hear from any industry. As he says himself, you know, obviously there are plenty of other entertainment industries that are pretty much exactly the same. And I am so saddened to think about the fact that we consider the ability to have a career in certain fields to be the ability to participate in the existing industry. 
because you know most of these industries are are not really that old they kind of were pioneered and developed by certain people who built a an industry out of what you know basically what they thought was the most effective way to you know to manage it at the time and it has perpetuated itself under the same rules without self-examination and Self-examination is very difficult because the people running the industry usually have every incentive not to do it, <laughs> and uh, in fact, it could lead them to become completely irrelevant, lose their jobs, and lose everything. And the people who are new to the industry, they are deliberately placed into circumstances where they have no power. They could not do anything to change the system. The only way you could ever change anything would be if you made it to the very top. But to make it that far, following like an altruistic desire to change things from the inside, first of all, takes a level of uh, fortitude and resolve that uh, is equivalent to an anime character. And second of all, um, you know, it's not easy to make progress being a good guy. It, the whole reason that this industry is so successful is that the people running it are, you know, are, are, are evil. And so if you really want to, you know, be able to change these, what you have to do is you have to build a new industry. You just have to go outside of what is being done and do something from the ground up. And plenty of people have done this. In fact, there are lots of, you know, mainstream things that were originally this. Companies usually come from somewhere. Uh, either people start up their own thing and, you know, they, they, they pull together connections and they make something. Who knows what scale it is, you know, but the, the more successful it is, the more the scale can rise and you can manage the scale to your own desire. And, you know, uh, if you are somebody with an idea and the drive to accomplish it, then you can, you know, sky's the limit on what's possible. You just have to be able to find the logic that makes it possible and execute that logic, um, you know, to the best of your abilities, which becomes more difficult the more people are involved, but you can also move way faster the more people are involved. So, you know, that's the trade-off, essentially. So, for me, building an industry unto myself it has taken me 20 years to get where I am right now. Consider this. That means I started when I was eight. And yes, I, start, I decided that I wanted to become a professional creative when I was eight years old. I started working on ideas for video games. I started drawing my own magazines. Uh, and, you know, when I was 10, I wrote a full 95-page magazine on lined paper with traced images out of... Uh, uh, Nintendo Power. And, you know, then I, I wrote uh, half of a novel. <laughs> I guess it would be a more like a quarter of a light novel. Uh, but, you know, from my perspective, it was half a book. Um, I wrote a bunch of fan fiction. I wrote poems. I had creative writing classes. I, you know, from ages 14 onwards, basically just uh, constantly came up with ideas for stories, wrote, like, concept pitches, character outlines, um, you know, poems, blog posts, forum posts, eventually started my anime blog in 2007, uh, consistently wrote basically the same type of articles that I write today, 
on there, including the more personal stuff. Like, none of the content I do now is really that different from the content I was doing when I was 15. It's just vastly better. And I had pretty much no readers any at any point. Like, when I was writing all those stories as a kid, nobody read them except for me. Like, my parents wouldn't even sit through... Nobody sat through my magazine. Nobody read my magazine. You know, I didn't read people my stories. Most of the time, they never made that much progress, so I'd be... Or, or were very emotional poems, so I didn't want anybody to read them. Um, but once I started posting on the internet, um, you know, I could maybe get people to read a post or respond to me on a forum... But uh, when I started my anime blog, I rarely got comments. I barely had any views. I started it in 2007, and it, it ran through 2012 before I started a YouTube channel. In that time, I had, ex you know, I had really grinded at trying to get better as a writer. I had talked to lots of other anime bloggers and gotten tons of advice on how to be more appealing to people. You know, like how can I how can I write in a way that more people will respond to me or like what, what are the flaws in my style? And people pointed out all kinds of stuff, but you know, I was always told by everybody at every stage that I had a very distinct voice. And so if I polished it, I could be a good writer. People always told me that. So I said, all right, that's what I'm banking on. That's my, that's the thing that has been singled out about what I do. Because when I was eight, I did not expect to be working for the next 10 years to get recognized. I thought I was going to write out a description of a video game, a la a game FAQ's guide, mail it to Shigeru Miyamoto, and be given $2 million, with which I would purchase every video game and console. This is what I believed. So consider the disappointment that I felt not only in myself for failing to complete my Masterpiece video game, but in, you know, growing up to realize that this is not how the industry works in any way whatsoever. And I am completely wrong in thinking that I can just pitch a game idea and become a game developer. A lot of people, I don't think, really experience those kinds of disillusionments until they are in college or at least late high school. I think a lot of people are very starry-eyed about getting into the artistic mediums because they just see talented people doing great work and they want to be like them. But they don't think about what actually goes into doing the job. And I don't just mean that in terms of like professionally, like what, what goes into acting, you know, beyond just performing in front of a microphone, but also what goes into being in the industry, what you have to do as a person to fit in, to be able to manage social relationships, to, you know, like basically to, to afford living while, you know, going through the early stages of this, this thing, the, the, the expectations of your credibility, essentially, Things like that do not occur to you until you actually learn what the industry is. And I feel lucky that I learned that the industry sucked from a very young age because the people who I idolized were largely people who had left the industry 
or built something for themselves. And the reason I idolized those people is that they had extremely distinct styles. And because I was somebody who was always told that I had an extremely distinct style, and I, you know, obviously the fact that I have an extremely distinct style is just bred from the fact that I have lived an extremely distinct life. I moved a lot of times growing up. I looked like a little girl and got made fun of. I just lived a, a life of feeling like I was different from everybody around me being treated like I was different from everybody around me and then developing a style that was different from everybody around me. And so when I see creators who have a very distinct style that really says something about them, that's the easiest for me to connect with. And those tend to be the people who they have difficulty getting into the industry because the industry wants more of what it already has. It wants proven formulas and it wants to slot new things in. And granted, evolution will still happen within that industry just because of the fact that people are just different enough or they they come through the normal channels but they make enough of a name for themselves through what makes them distinct that you know they eventually develop recognition but the kind of people who I tend to like are ones where I can't even see a shred of the industry in them I don't see anything in them that reminds me of other stuff that I've seen I only see them like Quentin Tarantino is pretty much the perfect example he was my first favorite director He's probably the most well-known director for having such a distinct style. And it's obvious that that style is a product of a manner of thinking that is extremely relatable to me. So immediately upon discovering Quentin Tarantino, it became my goal to be like him. I wanted to be a film director in my late teens and... If you were to look into the advice given by Tarantino or Robert Rodriguez, his friend, on how to become a film director, it is all encouragement to do it on your own. To write scripts every night when you get home from school or work and then shoot on the weekends. That is the advice of Tarantino. It's the best possible advice. But you have to understand, this is not advice for getting good in a year. This is not advice for getting good in five years. This is advice for getting good over the course of your entire life. This is a guide to a way of living that you will now have to stay doing until you reach a place that you are comfortable with, at which point you can relax and work a little bit slower, which is what happens to people when they get successful enough and they get slow. And, you know, I am in a weird position where I'm like comfortable with my lifestyle, but not at the point I want to be at. So I kind of bounce between periods of being like, oh, I have to be super intense. I have to work constantly. I have to get better. And then periods of being like, I'm fucking exhausted. Like I have put myself through way too much. I need to fucking, you know, I need to take a few more days off. Basically. I also managed to factor everything I do into my work. So it never truly feels like I'm not working which maybe is helpful and dangerous at the same time in different ways. But in any case, when I was 17, I wanted to drop out of high school and become a director because Ryuhei Kitamura, who directed Versus, had done that. But Ryuhei Kitamura was already making movies, and I was barely making YouTube videos at the time. And even though... 
me and my cousin got a professional camera. We never just got together the ideas. We never really, we never could really get past the logistical stage because we both had all these ideas of like scripts we wanted to do, but we didn't really understand how to light a scene or how to, you know, angle a shot. Like I just kind of thought have camera point at things, make good movie. Uh, you know, I have script, I have camera, I have movie. And in truth that I should have just gone with that. But the problem is that, you know, the visions in my mind were beyond what I could actually create with the skills that I had. And this was so discouraging to me that it made me not want to make film. And if you find yourself in that position, then you are, you really need to reassess, do I enjoy doing this thing or do I just want my ideas to come to life? Because that's an extremely important distinction. If you want to you want to write a book because you have a great idea for a story, but you're struggling because you don't know how to write that story and you don't think you're good enough, you're just not sure, like you can't really bring it to words in the way you want to, don't write that story. Write instead a story that you can write and then continue doing that until you're good enough to write your original story idea. Chances are, by the time you get good enough, you will realize that the reason you couldn't figure out how to write your original idea is that you didn't understand how to write. That idea was not built in a way that lends itself to your style of storytelling. It was a bunch of ideas that you had kind of have in your brain that you, you're trying to figure out how do I slot these into a story so you craft this probably really like epic in some kind of fashion world because it just feels like so many ideas are swirling around inside of this place and yet you can't find the through line. What is it that unites all of this? What is the point? What's the theme? What is the, you know, what is this trying to convey? Those are things that you start to understand when you start writing. I had a story that I wanted to tell very badly in my late teens called Tales from the End of the World. And it was literally created by me making a list of all of the things that I liked to see in media and then mixing and matching those things to create a cast of characters. Once I had my cast of characters, I originally had envisioned a bunch of visual scenes that I wanted to make into a movie. But each time I would try to write a script for this thing, I could not figure out how to get past the opening scene. I would rewrite the opening scene over and over again. I had a couple ideas for good opening scenes from different parts of the characters, backstories, you know, like important key moments that are supposed to happen that I would write as these fun opening scenes. And I'd be like, well, I don't really know, like, how do I get to the, these, all these points and these backstories and these ideas of what's supposed to happen? There's no through line. So I struggled with that and I could never get a script written. So once I had given up on making film because I basically realized that I don't really understand or enjoy the actual process of making film, what I do understand and enjoy is the process of writing. I'd been writing without even an audience for years and years at this point. I had done it instead of schoolwork on most days. I would just sit in class and write anime blog posts in class pretending like I'm taking notes. 
And uh, I did that all through college. That's why I dropped out. To me, writing came naturally. So I thought, okay, well, I have this story idea in my head. How about I bring it to life through writing? So I started to work on novelizing it. Now, I was 17 when I came up with the story. I was 19 and in my first year of college when I finally sat and came up with the plot. I eventually found the through line for at least the first book of this series. But that through line was still through a very complicated and disarranged story. It's a story that is bouncing between all these characters who are really tangentially related to each other, and there's some interconnectedness that makes the story maybe feel more clever. And, by the way, this is heavily inspired by the Boogie Pop and Others light novel. But that book also is, you know, basically a bunch of tangentially related characters united by certain thematic through lines that are at the core of the story. That's what I was trying to imitate. I didn't do as good of a job. Also, my writing still sucked because it was pretty much my first thing that I'd actually like completed writing and even then it's not technically complete but hey I did 50,000 words in the span of NaNoWriMo that November and that's my first light novel so after that I kind of threw myself into blogging because I looked at it like oh man this story I could never figure out how to make it better like I knew that it wasn't good enough but I didn't know what I had to do to fix it. I didn't know how to close certain plot holes. I wasn't sure how to finish certain angles of it. I definitely didn't know what I was going to do with the story of book two. And it just kind of felt like I realized this story I've come up with is too chaotic. It doesn't have enough of a, a purpose. But whenever I would try to write stories that were more concentrated, I didn't have enough complexity in the concept. I could come up with like a really strong main character who has a strong motivation, but like what's the story going to be the same thing every time? You know, I think about any show that's like something like Shakugan no Shana, where like the character is well thought out, but then each arc is just about some completely boring villain and, you know, very little progress is made in the story or in the characterization across each arc because the author just hasn't thought beyond the core conceit of the idea of this character and her relationship to the main character. And this is the ghetto that a lot of light novels fall into. And it's still good enough to get published if you have a character who's striking enough, who people like enough. But even if I thought I had characters like that at various times in my writing, I can see that this story is just as vapid as the stuff that I want it to be better than. And so I find myself once again thinking... Maybe I'm not cut out to write fiction. I go into so much detail about this story because I want to explain how you can dissuade yourself from doing something that you really want to do by convincing yourself that you just have no place or you just have no talent. You're, you're not going to make it into this industry because you don't have whatever X factor it is that lends to being able to do it. And it's always hard because there are some people who have so much X factor and get recognized for it so immediately that they will shoot past you. I mean, if you're looking at musicians or athletes, you know, these people become famous in their late teens or early 20s on average. You know, if really, if you're looking at any celebrities, these are people who usually become famous fairly young. 
And you're just going to see them as like, wow, I'm 25 now. I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm nowhere near as big as this, you know, seven-year-old just got overnight. And it's easy to say, like, maybe I'm just way less talented than that person. But the fact of the matter is that everybody has something that can be their X factor. You can find it. You can make it up if you need to. It's just about grinding at your understanding of it until you've made it to a level where you can make it pop. Because some people might, they just, they, they, they hit the tuning fork just right to be in tune with everybody else at the right moment. And you are sitting there, you know, with your tuner out, like fucking strumming this guitar, trying to find that note for fucking the rest of your life until finally when you hear that resonance and people get it. And even then it might be just as difficult to find that frequency again. You know, you think about like one hit wonder bands, people who, you know, have one explosive moment of everybody getting what they're doing. And then it just never quite happens in the same way. But even still, you can build so much off of that. And you can still find, you know, a, a less accessible frequency, but still a big enough one to, to, to keep your boat. Let's go. The boats are back. That analogy's happening again. People might look at me and they might think of me as like, oh... That guy, you know, like he said, he had a unique voice since he was young and he was, you know, working since he was eight. Uh, how could I catch up with him? And it's like, well, I mean, it took 20 years to, for me to just get here. Like, I'm sitting here watching people younger than me blow past me all the time. People who've been working at it maybe for three or four years and then suddenly something happens. Like, Think about people like Nux Taku or Unique Namasaurus. Like, these guys came in after me, and then they had explosive growth, even though they had been, you know, small for a long time. And then all of a sudden, bam, they're huge. Even like, uh, like Rika Fag, Mr. Cynical, you know? Like, I know this guy as a commenter for years, and now he's got, you know, 80,000 subscribers on YouTube, which is more, <laughs> that's a fucking lot more than the average anti-tuber has. I've been sitting at 370-ish, 300, I think I'm at 355,000 uh, subscribers for years. Like, for at least two years, I've been pretty stagnant in my sub count. And it's not that I'm not gaining new subs, it's that I'm losing and gaining subs at a fairly equivalent rate. Slightly faster losing them than gaining them, but it's been going on forever. And it's obvious why, because I have, indeed, turned my frequency to one that is more resonant with the people who hear it, but it doesn't reach as many ears. And that's always been my goal. That's exactly what I wanted from the very beginning. When I launched my YouTube channel, it was a pure conceit of drawing attention to myself that could be diverted into other things. There is a chat that is emblazoned into my memory. And forgive me, anybody who's listened to me talk about you know, elements of my history in several places before, but there's a chat emblazoned into my mind when I made my second My Little Pony analysis video. Because you have to understand, I bought a microphone with the money I got from working at Target. I got a job at Target exclusively to buy equipment. 
bought a bunch of equipment so that I could make YouTube videos analyzing video games. I was working on a Mass Effect analysis. I, my plan was a, quote, three-hour Mass Effect analysis covering all three games. This was at a time when there were not three-hour game analyses on YouTube. That was not a thing. I wanted to be the first. This was late 2012. So I was writing. I think I wrote, uh, like, half of part one uh, on my iPhone while I was working at Target just like while I was on breaks and stuff. I wanted to make this video, but I wanted to test my equipment first. And it just so happened that I, at the time, had also been, previously that year, earlier in the year, I had been, like, massively into the Friendship is Magic community. Basically, I had treated it as a fad initially. I found out about the show in early 2012. I spent two months binging all the fan content that existed and just getting like a total view of the fandom and then I kind of stopped paying attention because it wasn't in season and I got into video games and I wanted to cover that. Then it came back into season. I wrote a post about season three basically just as a way to flex writing chops and then I recorded audio of it just as a way to test my microphone, posted that video on Reddit and it got more views in a day than any blog post I'd almost ever gotten. That is to say, a hundred views. So, I messaged my friend Ghost Lightning and I said, there are 52 episodes of this show. The current season will run for 13. So what this means is that every week I can cover one current episode and one old episode and I'll have two videos a week for 52 weeks. And I assumed at the time that season four would come out uh, sooner than it did, but that within that span of time, I would cover both seasons three and four and the entirety of the show. And then in those off weeks when I wasn't covering new episodes because they weren't coming out, that would be when I'd make you know, more general posts, like general observations about the show or uh, like whole write-ups on each individual character. And so the idea was that within one year, I would have completely analyzed the show. I would have covered it from every angle and I would be done with it and I could wrap that in a bow and it would be like I wrote a book about My Little Pony, basically. And then I would move on and carry that audience into talking about video games. This was the plan. But... Things went way farther than I expected. I got way bigger than I expected. I ended up being a way bigger part of the community than I expected and getting lost in the fame and, and like learning about all the other elements of what it means for people to consume your stuff, you know, uh, completely changed my perspective on what exactly I was doing, you know, what world I was entering, what it meant to be popular without being any different from the way that I've always been. And once I started to bleed more of my real personality into the character that I was using in these videos and people started to get a sense of like, who really is Digibro? What is he really about? What are his interests outside of this thing that he's been talking about? That's when I started to develop that cult following that I had always wanted. The people who weren't going to care if I talk about video games or anime or whatever else. And so I decided to really try to push that. I wanted to be like, I'm going to talk about everything and it'll all be from the same writing style, and that's the appeal. However, because I really specialize in anime, it was just a lot easier to focus on anime, and every time I try to cover video games, people just bitch because they don't like my taste, I guess, so, uh, you know, whatever. I'm an anime guy, kind of de facto, but the people who actually pay me usually know me for more than that. 
So basically what I'm saying is I built my own industry. I am not supported by any facets of an existing industry. My money comes from Patreon. And no, really, like, not even YouTube. Like, people act like I'm a YouTuber, like I'm, like, really a Google employee. Not really. I don't make that much money from YouTube. I post tons of shit off of YouTube just to my patrons. YouTube is just the best tool to facilitate mass upload of video. I get, you know, demonetized all the time. Not as much as a lot of other people, but I do get demonetized. I face lots of copyright issues. I've had monetization taken away for long stretches of time. I've had my channel taken down three times before. Uh, YouTube has done tons. Like, they've, yes, obviously I would not be as successful as I am without YouTube's algorithm. That is absolutely the biggest thing that has helped me. But that is just the way that things were expediated. It's not like I was going to give up if I didn't eventually, you know, hit that stride. If it had had to be another 10 years of work before I blew up, I would have worked another 10 years. Because like with my job at Target, any job I would have gotten would have been just to sustain me while I try to escape it. I never, ever planned to work a normal job. Ever. It has never crossed my mind to think that I would decide to live a life in which I needed to work a normal job. Like, if I can afford to not, I will not. The only way I will do it is if I can't afford not to because my art just can't pay for me to live. But that is far from the case currently, and I see no reason to think that it will be the case in the near future. So, for as far as I'm concerned... Uh, you know, everything's going according to Keikaku. But this industry that I've built unto myself, it's not very complex. I don't pay a lot of people. I'm not involved in a lot of things. Like, there are smaller things like the PCP, right? That's me and all my friends. We have this thing together that we all work on. But none of us are, like, primarily employed by it. It's all of our second, you know, for fun small job that, you know, pays some money and there's an industrial aspect to it in that it is, it's a collaborative work. There are meetings held every week. I don't know why, uh, but they are. And I don't attend because I don't believe in meetings, but, you know, uh, that's just my philosophy. So, and I still get to work there. So it's a pretty good job, you know, <laughs> and like, that's like the most complex project that I work on. I don't employ a lot of people, you know, I don't pay a lot of people because it's hard enough to keep this thing afloat by myself. This is a boat that I am attempting to, not only does my boat have like a really ridiculous paint job, not only does my boat uh, you know, do flips and turns and it is built to go as fast as possible and it, it has really good handling. It can fucking U-turn on a dime very easily. Uh, I can fucking, I can do donuts in my boat and I will. I can do whatever the fuck I want with this boat. This boat is really tricked out. My boat is based on, uh, Omar Rodriguez Lopez's guitar. So there, there's a custom guitar the Omar guitar that is essentially a very bare bones guitar whose purpose is its modularity, that you can fucking do anything to the guitar. That is what my boat is like. 
It's not a giant boat. It's not a complicated boat, but it looks fucking crazy and it goes absolutely ape shit. And I don't care if I fucking, if I literally ride so high up a tidal wave that I plunge 40 feet underwater and I have to struggle to fucking drive my boat back up to the surface, it's worth it for the fucking fun, for the thrill of the boat experience. I love boating, dude. I fucking love boating. I love working on this boat. I love my boat. Nice boat! But frankly... It's a very self-serving, you know, way of living. I'm not going to lie. Like, having the most fun with your boat is not making the most helpful boat. Obviously, a lot of people are afraid to ride my boat. I don't even really get a lot of offers for help with my boat. I rarely get those offers, and I usually turn them down because I'm like, I don't think you want to be on this boat. <laughs> you don't understand where this boat goes. This boat will ride close to other boats. It will it will help other boats along. I'll I'll tie a you know, I'll tie a rope to your boat and help to pull you out of the ocean. But I, I usually try to keep my boat independent. So I have tons of ideas for how to help other people to work on their fucking boats. I could be, I, if, you know, really one of my uh, alternate alternative ideas for work, like if I ever run out of ideas, if I ever just don't want to make art myself anymore, I could just be a consultant on how to fucking build boats because I can, I'm very good and people will tell, people tell me this, all right? People who have been successful, who have followed my advice, you know, people like Jeff Du who changed his whole thumbnail game after I scolded him for his thumbnail game and his title game, you know, people like that, uh, you know, they will tell you that I know how to tell somebody else what they need to do to fix their shit. And a lot of people don't fucking listen. And then they continue crying about how their shit's not working when they have not done what I told them to do. But there have been plenty of people who, doing what I told them to do, helped them out in a big way. And you don't have to just, you know, you can take as, or leave as much of my advice as you want. Even if you take a little bit of it, it can it can help just take the parts that you're comfortable with, you know? I'm not, I'm not your fucking dad, but I'm just telling you, I'm really good at helping people build boats. So, obviously I know how to build a bigger boat. I just don't want to work on a bigger boat. I'm having too much fun driving my boat, sailing my boat. I'm having too much fun with my boat to work on your boat or to try to build a bigger boat with you. Yes, I know that if we work together, we could build a more stable boat. And maybe one day I will want more stability and, you know, I won't be so in interested in fucking doing loop-de-loops in my boat. But for now, Mindless Self-Indulgence is still one of my favorite bands. But I've been talking in a lot of abstract terms and vagueness because I want this to be, like, relatable to as many people as possible. But because of the fact that this is inspired by that Chase Face podcast, I want to give some more specific ideas. So this is just my attempt to show you what kind of boat I would try to build. What kind of boat I, first of all, if I wanted to, I could build the framework of this boat entirely by myself. It would probably take a year. This is not a hard boat to build. You just need somebody who knows how to do it. I would have to learn how to do it. Somebody else could probably build this boat in a fucking day. The boat is a website or an app just called a uh, voice for hire. Why not? And it would be a service 
in which you can like basically Amazon shop for voice actors uh, who will have, you know, like product descriptions. So let's say Chase Face, right? Chase Face uh, would list on his page the microphone that he uses, his soundproofing setup. He would probably, uh, you know, say what programs he knows how to use, what audio editing he is capable of, such as, you know, he knows, he obviously knows how to normalize and uh, do EQ and all that kind of shit. You know, he knows how to manage his vocal levels. He's, he's good at audio engineering kind of tasks. So uh, you would have that kind of stuff listed. I mean, this could also be, uh, you know, audio engineers can also have a section on this site because you could easily hire them in the same kind of fashion. And, uh, you know, most people don't even realize, like, they, they probably just hire a guy who is certified rather than, like, you know, understanding what people need to know, essentially. So whatever. So he'll have all this stuff listed. Then he'll have some samples, right? So here's him doing various types of voices that he's done before. Um, maybe there will be a a cost of, like, if you pay me $1 or $5, I'll do an audition demo for your, for your role that you want me to perform. And then um, basically have a price per either line or hour or however you want to set it. Have your price that you've set. Now, this website will advise you what prices you like what what prices you are considered to be worth or like what you are normally purchased at like what people what people who are equivalent to you in skill have done so basically every time you get hired you will of course get a a notch you know it's like a, a counter of how many times you've been hired before and so obviously the more times you've been hired the more trustworthy you'll be to people who want to hire you um, and you can, you know, your ranking will go up. So the website, you know, it'll judge basically things like, you know, the quality of your equipment, the, the number of roles that you've had and, um, you know, uh, use or customer reviews basically about like how easy you are to work with and things like that. And, uh, you know, it will recommend you a price that it thinks you should pay, but you can set your own. The same way that Bandcamp does. Like Bandcamp always recommends you uh, charge $7 for an album because that's the price the most people are willing to pay. But, of course, everybody charges whatever they think is appropriate. So this is kind of like Bandcamp meets Fiverr in a way. You have samples of your work. You kind of have like a profile page with reviews. But it's not social media, you know. I mean, you can link your social media. But basically, this is just a, a marketplace to hire people to do voices for whatever you've got going on. And the reason I had this idea is because I had no fucking idea how cheap voice acting is. Because Chase is talking about, like, the rates that he will get for jobs that he's done. For even, ma like, he talked about at one point, like, a fairly major job that he got that paid like a couple hundred dollars, I could easily afford to hire you motherfuckers. I just need to know where you are. You know, I don't need to go through an agent. I would, I will never pay an agent to do anything. That is not something I will do. I have money. You know, I'm an investor. I have put money into videos I've made. I've paid artists to work with me. I have not gone through any agencies. I have not gone through Anything except for knowing who people are and finding out what they're worth or offering them what I think they're worth and them accepting it. You know, that those are the manners in which I have hired people to work on my stuff. So were I to want voice actors on a project, 
the absolute best way for me to find them would be to have like just a site where I could just shop, just shop through actors, listen to their bits, and then like select a handful who I think are like my top candidates, pay each of them to give me an audition. Yes, paid audition. Think about it. Uh, And then I pick whoever I want and I hire them and I pay them whatever their asking rate is. This just makes sense to me. I mean, why would the industry in any way need to exist? Why? There is no excuse. Like, it should be a meritocracy. The only reason you should be a popular voice actor is that a lot of people wanted to use your voice. And, you know, obviously, if your voice is used a lot, then your rank will go up and people will look at you and say, oh, this person's super trustworthy, but you will also be more expensive. You can charge more the more in demand you are, or you can charge little even if you are super in demand if you just want to work a whole lot. You know, like that uh, that one dude who does the um, congratulations uh, video, uh, Tyrone. Uh, if you want to be like that, you know, you can just work a lot and probably make a shit ton of money that way as well. But there's also going to be people who want to find voice actors who are not mainstream known. And it's very, very difficult to audition, uh, you know, unknown voice talent because it's only going to be the very small pool of people who are wherever you happen to be unless you're doing it through the internet. So it just makes... So much sense. I see no reason that anybody other than people who work in the current industry and are served by that, I see no reason anybody wouldn't want this to exist outside of those people. This would be pure benefit to anybody involved with it. And it would be so easy to set up that it would literally revolutionize the industry. Because, yes, it might be true that you will not likely get hired to do a voice on, I don't know, uh, some mainstream TV show, but I mean, at the same time, there's a high likelihood that Justin Roiland's going to fuck around on this device and hire you to be on Rick and Morty. There's a good chance, or whatever he's working on at the time, you know, there's a good chance that any internet creator is going to pretty much exclusively use this other, because most of us just hire people we know. We just make connections and we hire people we happen to be able to get into contact with. Um, but you know, if if we had this site, I mean, I would never use anything else. Why the hell would I? You know, I mean, even if I was paying somebody who I knew, why not? I mean, the site would probably collect like uh, some percentage of, you know, the earnings or whatever. So maybe I would want to go through, you know, just if I know the guy, I'm just going to pay him myself. But, you know, this is just such a good idea. I can't think of any reason that it doesn't already exist unless it does. And I'm just retarded. But uh, there you go. Build your own industry. Just don't ask me to do it. Um, that's it for this whirling dervish. That's right. It was a single topic boy. Um, build your own boat. And every time I've ever said that, the response I always get is, it's not that easy. No shit. This is not a five-year plan. This is not a 10-year plan. This is a 20 to 30 to 40-year plan. Actually, before I wrap this up, Let me tell you a little bit about the Norfolk film scene, because here in Virginia Beach, uh, we're next to the the downtown city of Norfolk. Um, It's it's essentially, you know, fairly well integrated between these two cities. We, We are culturally very similar. There's a lot of, you know, travel between them. And the 
there there was a film program at Old Dominion University, which my brother Victor attended, um, you know, in order to get his film degree. And there's not really much film work to do around here. There, the film program wasn't that advanced. You know, the main film programs that are famous are in L.A. or Texas. And Victor thought about going to school in one of those places because the opportunities would be bigger. But he ultimately wanted to stay here. And he ended up becoming sort of embedded into the culture of what films were being made here. Because his professor, along with director Derek Bort, have been making films in Norfolk. And, you know, even if that's the only work there is, if he can get work on those productions... He's still getting credits to his name. And so because of the fact that these guys have chosen to do that, they have expanded the film um, the film curriculum at ODU considerably. Like after Victor graduated, it became a better film program and more film jobs and film work has been getting done in the area. And he also has, you know, developed a company with some of his, you know, other friends who have you know, who who regularly get film work uh, doing things like making workplace safety videos or they're going to be filming uh, the like some of the marathons that are coming up in Virginia Beach. So you know that's extremely small stuff. It's beginner stuff. It's not his goals. He wants to be a director of photography for re, you know major films for films from brilliant directors or even direct films himself. I mean Victor has won a bunch of. Um, he's won the, the local 48 hour film festival, uh, like three times. He won a bunch of categories three years in a row, including best picture and best director. Um, and you know, he, he, so he is a capable filmmaker, capable director who can do good work, but to actually achieve the goals he's going for, he's not going to get there this next half decade. You know, he's already been working at it for more than five years and now he's going into his next five years of still building towards you know something that would even if he got there you know he's not immediately the the best he's ever going to be it's not like he's at the height that he ever wants to achieve even at that moment so just considering that amount of work you know it's like you can't be thinking about whether this is something you can get done in five or ten years it just it takes as long as it takes Maybe you're going to blow up and get famous at some point before then, but that doesn't mean that you're now good. It doesn't mean that you've made as much progress as you would have if you continue working for another 10 years. Even if you do blow up, if you keep working, you'll just blow up bigger or get better or evolve in some way. There's no reason to stop. There's never a good reason to say, oh, I give up unless you sincerely don't want to do it anymore because... You know, in the case of Chase Face talking about voice acting, he he sincerely has certain, you know, problems with it beyond just the industry um, on a more personal level of realizing, you know, maybe he's just not talented. Maybe he's just not sought after enough. But I, upon hearing him say how much he's getting paid, I immediately concluded, oh, well, if I ever need a voice actor, I'm going to hire Chase because I know him and he's a voice actor. You know, I mean, granted, I'm surrounded by people who are who have, you know, good voices like I, everybody in the PCP is a very capable voice talent for anything I would probably want them to act on. But, you know, 
uh, I would not even have to pay most of those guys probably to, to give me their voice talent. But, you know, Chase Face is well worth the asking price of what he's getting paid to do professional work. And he said that he's worked on web series. I have to suspect there are plenty of people on the Internet who would be happy to hire him if he, you know, were available to them. If they, you know, instead of them having to put out a casting call and just hope that it reaches auditioners who they can afford or want to work with, or, you know, they probably have no understanding of what the industry, how it works in any way. Instead of that, they just go, I want voice actors for a project. Let me log on to, you know, voice for hire and see who's available um, and check out some voices. I think you'd have much better luck that way. But, uh, you know, and you can also advertise yourself on the website through your YouTube channel. So, you know, it would be, I mean, like uh, Monkey Jones had a, you know, a fiver where he would just say whatever anybody asked him to say for five bucks. And I'm pretty sure he made some decent money off of that just because people want to pay somebody who they know to do a thing. I mean, I make $10 uh, from fucking 100 people every month uh, just to rant about shit. So, you know, just saying. If you guys implemented the system by which I get paid to do rants into everything else, well, you have Fiverr. But uh, <laughs> but you could also, I mean, and granted, there's tons of voice actors on Fiverr. So you could think of that possibly as basically just being what I'm describing with voice for hire. I just think that having it specialized in such a way where, you know, there's like a certain standard. Like what makes Bandcamp better than you know for for music releases than other websites is that it's specialized towards the way that music is best presented so something like that would be preferable to me but you know maybe fiber is good enough for some of you i don't know that's it i've rambled goodbye what do you have to say about all this pantsy party i'm on a boat motherfucker